you know, one big takeaway that I've had from my research is that resources matter. If as a society, we want to improve the outcomes of children and disadvantaged children in particular, we have to throw money at the problem. I'm JB Wogan from Mathematica, and welcome back to On the Evidence, a show that examines what we know about today's most urgent challenges and how we can make progress in addressing them. In his research, Kirabo Jackson has explored causal relationships between school spending and student outcomes. For example, in one paper, Jackson and his co-authors found that an increase in per-pupil spending leads to more completed years of education, higher wages, and a reduction in the annual incidence of adult poverty. Jackson's work has also shed light on the role that teachers and schools play in helping students acquire skills. His research also underscores the importance of measuring the effects of teachers on students' overall well-being, rather than focusing exclusively on skills measured by standardized tests. Jackson is the 20th winner of the David N. Kershaw Award and Prize, which recognizes young professionals under the age of 40 who have made distinguished contributions to the field of public policy. David Kershaw, for whom the award is named, was a founder and the first president of Mathematica. In the spring of 1979, he helped guide the establishment of the Association for Public Policy Analysis and Management, better known by the acronym APAM. Later that same year, he died from cancer at the age of 37. The award in his memory was created in 1983 and has been jointly administered by Mathematica and APAM. In this episode of On the Evidence, Jackson discusses his education research, the impacts of COVID-19 on education, and how he uses social media in his work. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for being willing to talk with me today, and congratulations again on getting the Kershaw Award. Thank you very much. For listeners who might not be aware of your work, how would you describe or how would you summarize your research interests? So, you know, I'm, I'm trained as an economist, and uh, most of my work is focused on the economics of education. And within that broad umbrella of the economics of education, my most recent research has been focused, I think, on two, primarily two themes. One of them is understanding the causal relationship between school spending and student outcomes. And the other strand of research is focused on trying to understand the contribution that teachers and also schools play in, the, in sort of generating the skills that students acquire in school. And the idea behind this second strand of research is, is not to just look at test scores as being the primary measure of student skills or student learning, but to take a, a sort of a broader view and try to measure the impacts of teachers or the impacts of schools on a broad set of skills, socio-emotional skills and behaviors. I always like to ask researchers who come on the show about their biography. You know, how do you personally connect with this work? What made you personally interested in the topic of public education? Or if you want to get more specific about long-term success and spending and the dynamics of early education and all the way through uh, high school and college. What made you interested in those topics? I was always drawn to economics. So obviously I, I, did, I studied economics in undergrad and also in grad school. And 
you know, while I, I really enjoy the, the sort of the formalism of being able to model things mathematically, what really appealed to me about just doing sort of policy-related economics research is the fact that you can start to quantify things and speak relatively concretely about the potential impacts of policies in ways that could be really important and valuable for individuals who are making policy decisions. So I really was drawn to the idea of using the statistical tools and the sort of the tools uh, in terms of thinking and modeling that we get in the standard economics training towards really informing policy and having a policy impact. The reason I'm sort of drawn to education more broadly is, you know, in terms of impacting policy, in the, in the inequalities and inequities that we see in society have been around for a long time. And there are a lot of things that we might be able to do to improve outcomes, but it seems that education is one of perhaps one of the most compelling levers that we can pull. Now, that's not to say it's a panacea that's going to solve all problems, but it seems like if you want to sort of improve the outcomes of individuals who are sort of born in the state in a position of disadvantage, ensuring that individuals have access to high quality education is one of the probably one of the more one of the most effective ways of improving their outcomes later on in life relative to what it would have been if they were not exposed to better schooling. So that's what sort of drew me to the broad topic of the economics of education. Within that, I think one of the big foundational questions, especially if you're an economist, is to what extent does money matter? You're often trying to figure out how does one allocate your scarce resources in a way to maximize the objective that you care about in the context of education. You know, we spend a lot of money, both individually as parents, but also as a nation in terms of our federal, local, and state budgets on education. So you want to know how much bang are we getting for our buck? And given what that number is, how can we sort of maximize the output that we get? So that's what sort of drew me to this question. It's sort of, I think, foundational for the broad field of the economics of education. So I saw your talk at the Economic Policy Institute, and you referenced having a deeper appreciation for the differences in two different stories about schools and their resources, one that was sharing staff across schools, you know, they, they didn't have enough money for their own nurse, and another had all these, you know, all these full-time staff, lots of resources, and how nice it sounded. I think there was um, an hour, there was, there was a, a period that was set aside for mindfulness, for example, and you, you were referencing your own experience and perspective as a parent. Does that inform any of your research today, being a parent and, and now having to make decisions about where to send your child to school? Certainly within the context of school spending, you know, it's easy to sort of think about, oh, here's a district that spends, you know, $10,000 per child and here's another one that spends 15000 or 7000 and sort of look at those numbers and try to make sense of it. But, you know, when you actually visit these schools and you see what it translates into, you can really understand why having a, you know, slashing education budget, which is something that policymakers are talking about doing right now amid the pandemic, um, you can see how that's going to have impacts. You talk to principals when you're touring schools, for example, as I've done. And you hear them telling stories about, well, we don't have enough money to basically reduce class sizes, so we're going to use the gym to sort of have extra space to do these things, or we're going to hire a few additional, we can't actually hire a full-time teacher, we're going to hire additional aides. And you hear all these strategies and you, you know, that the principals are using to basically squeeze as much as they can out of the money that they have, and you can sort of see on the ground that there are some places where the principals are spending a considerable amount of their time trying to figure out how to make their budgets work for their kids. And then there are other contexts where 
principals don't spend that much time on it because they don't they're relatively flush with cash so it, it's something that you become very aware of either as a researcher who spends time on the ground or as a parent as you sort of look across different schools uh, you can see that the amount of money that's being spent per child has real tangible implications for the kinds of experiences that children at these schools are exposed to and you can sort of see it and it's very difficult in those circumstances to think oh well you know money doesn't matter because you can see exactly how it can matter um, when you when you talk to these principals and you see what the school building looks like just the environment um, whether there's fresh paint on the walls whether there's air conditioning whether the air the air quality is very high these are all things that are tangible differences between schools that are well resourced and, th and those that are not I would add to that Aside from the school spending research, the other strand of my research, which I also mentioned, is trying to think about evaluating schools has also been influenced a lot by my being a parent and having a child go through this process um, and having to see schools and try to determine what, what's best for my child. A lot of the research that people do in, in this area measures school quality using test scores. Um, so they use a methodology called value-added by essentially looking at test scores at the beginning of the year and test scores at the end of the year for the same sets of kids and they measure the test score growth associated with a particular school. And we sort of, we call that the value added. It would, should be the extent to which a school or a teacher improves test scores above and beyond what you might expect based on observable characteristics. You know, when you, when you see these metrics and then you observe uh, other things about the school, you might get a sense that some, some schools may be very high value added, but the students don't seem very happy there, or the, or the teachers don't seem very happy there, or the school culture is one that may be focus very, very heavily on high test scores, but then you see that their disciplinary rates are very high and students are being suspended at high rates. And you think, well, is that really an environment that I want my child to go in? And it's pretty clear when you have to think about it from the perspective of a parent that just because we measure test scores is not necessarily the thing that we should be measuring, or at least it shouldn't be the only thing that we want to measure. And we really should take a more holistic approach potentially. And that's definitely informed my research. And my research now in this area focuses a lot on survey-based measures of socio-emotional development and also just behaviors such as attendance, discipline, and all these sorts of things, which are not very well measured by test scores, but I think are very important for capturing the kinds of schooling environments that are going to be conducive to success. I noticed that in your talk at the Economic Policy Institute, you also had these two quotes from the same person, Douglas Harrell, that offered different viewpoints or perspectives on the value of education. And again, it seemed like the second one is more about kind of this more holistic long-term view and the first one is more about these narrow domains or skills that test scores might capture. Yeah, so I, I think the two quotes really capture what I think is sort of a philosophical versus practical difference in terms of how people think about high-quality schooling. And, you know, I think if you speak to most parents or policymakers about what an excellent educational institution looks like or is, they would give you an answer that maybe it does involve the idea that these are schools where students are achieving high, having high achievement in terms of test scores. But I think they would also add additional things to it. They would they'd talk about places where students are motivated, where students are engaged, where students are engaging in critical thinking, in creative thought, and a whole host of things that are sort of broadly, not necessarily well measured by test scores, but broadly are talking about sort of cultivating a person who's going to be successful into adulthood. But, you know, when we think about how we measure school quality for policy purposes, um, the vast majority of the time this is done using a standardized tests. Now, I don't think this is because the people who are doing the analysis are unaware of these other components. It's just that it's very difficult to measure a lot of these other things. So 
we tend to focus on the things that we can measure. So test scores are very, very convenient. We can measure them. We can measure growth in test scores over time. We can compare test scores for student A to test scores for student B. We can compare test scores for school A compared to school B. So it, it allows itself to a lot of very tangible things that you can sort of point to and say, well, these are things that are working or things that are not working, which is, I think, very, very valuable for policy. The problem is, is that I don't think this is a complete measure of school quality. I don't think most people would think that they are. So a lot of the research I'm doing now is trying to sort of bring those two ideas back in sort of to be consistent with each other, which is maybe we can bring the way that we measure school quality to be more in line with the way that we think or conceive of school quality outside of the sort of the research realm, which is to be sort of a, a place where holistically people are, are thriving. At APM, or I guess at the virtual APM Fall Research Conference, you'll be giving a talk related to your research and related to the Kershaw Award that you've won. What will be the topic of that talk? Well, I think I'm, I will, the talk is really just going to be about lessons that, that I think I've learned and sort of big picture takeaways from the research that I've been engaging in over, 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 over time. And, you know, I think the big sort of takeaways that I, I can think of right now, and some of them are, are sort of more asking questions or raising questions than, than answering them. But I think, you know, one big takeaway that I've had from my research is that resources matter. If as a society, we want to improve the outcomes of children and disadvantaged children in particular, we have to throw money at the problem. Now, that doesn't mean that more money is the answer to all the problems. It doesn't mean that you can just spend your way out of all the, all the educational problems that we have, but it does mean that it needs to be part of the solution. If we're going to improve outcomes for children born to poverty, if we're going to make sure test scores are improved for all kids, if we're going to try and reduce the likelihood that individuals who are in poverty drop out or those that are not in poverty drop out from high school and can go on and go to college, I think we're going to have to commit financial resources to our public schooling system to enable that to happen. Now, of course, once the resources are there, it has to be used wisely. And that sort of leads to the second branch of the research and the sort of the second finding I want to talk about, which is that the things that improve outcomes are not necessarily the things that improve test scores. So once you've decided you want to spend the money, you have to figure out what you're going to spend it on. Now, the ways in which we're going to do that is you want to identify those interventions or those policies that are most effective. And I would argue, based on my own uh, reading of the research and my own private research, that the policies that are most effective are not always the ones that improve test scores. And we should take a broader look at those policies, because I basically find in my own research that there are many interventions or policies that may improve test scores, but have small effects on things that we care about, such as dropping out of school or going to college or earning more money later on. And on the flip side, there are policies or interventions or particular schools that are really good at getting students to go to college, getting kids to go to four-year colleges and graduate and earn more money that are not necessarily doing so great at raising test scores. And it's because they're doing good at sort of motivating kids, teaching kids those sort of soft socio-emotional skills that are really, really, really important for adult thriving, but are not necessarily measured by the narrow set of skills that are focused on in standardized testing. So I think those are really two big messages that I'd like to convey that I think I've learned over, over time. And of course, that raises a lot of questions, of course, about, well, what are the best interventions um, out there? And I think that's, those are all open questions that I'm still actively engaged in, and I hope other researchers will engage in as well. Do you think that the field is moving towards a better way of measuring good teachers and, and, or get, and the field is getting smarter about what we mean when we say good teacher? 
I think the answer is is yes and no. I think that there is certainly a growing appreciation for the fact that a good teacher or a good school, and, and I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna zero bit zero back on schools a little bit just because it's easier to measure the impact of the school level for some of these things than it is at the teacher level because sometimes it's hard to sort of ascribe blame to a particular <laughs> teacher. I don't I don't mean the word blame in a bad way, but I think there's a general you know there's a there's a movement towards measuring other things of about students. So you know socio emotional skills is something that is being measured by schools now be measured by districts. We're measuring things where students uh, report on their feelings of belonging, how they feel about the school, measures of school climate. These are all things that are being increasingly measured. I still don't think we know exactly how to use them, but measuring is clearly the first step. You know, the research that I've done on this topic would not have been possible had it not been for the fact that Chicago public schools allowed researchers from the University of Chicago to create these measures and implement them in those schools. So, we're certainly moving in the right track because you know, if you can't even measure something, you can't figure out anything about it. But I think the new frontier is going to be exactly what you say, which is how do we take these measures and use them in a way that's going to be informative for policy and not lead to sort of ill effects. I mean, the, the, the first thing is, just, of course, if you have survey measures and you ask people you know, how much belonging they feel in their classroom, it's very easy to manipulate that. Students can always lie. Teachers can encourage students to lie on, on those things. Uh, not that they wouldn't necessarily do that, but you can imagine ways in which survey measures can be manipulated such that they no longer are informative about what's happening. So we have to think sort of cautiously about how we use these things. They certainly, because they measure something meaningful, I think we sort of now know that, but I think we don't yet know exactly how to do that. And I think that that is absolutely an open area of research right now that I'm engaged in currently. And I think other people are also trying to figure that out as well. So if, if we were to suddenly turn this into part of an accountability scheme where teachers are incentivized to do well on those measures, then the efficacy or value of those measures may be compromised. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, and, and it, it would basically, you know, we, it's, it's not as though we don't have that problem with test scores either. I mean, we've had test score cheating scandals in this country um, already. So we know that when you attach stakes, manipulation may likely occur. It's harder to manipulate test scores than some of these other measures, so we think it's sort of better. But it's but but it's basically the same issue. It's just that it's so much easier to manipulate these these other measures that you know you have to wonder whether it would be, would it would it would make any sense to start using it for um, accountability purposes. But that doesn't mean you know I've always and I often try and make this point, just because you can measure something and it is important doesn't mean we should use it for accountability. We could certainly use it for. Just diagnostics, for example, where the incentives to game it perhaps are not there. So I think these are the kinds of things that I think policymakers should be thinking about, and I'm sure are thinking about. And I think these are the kinds of things that researchers need to sort of figure out what are the best ways that we can use the information about these non-test score measures to better improve policy. One of the things that I, I love about APM is that a lot of the research, you know, it is, it's about public policy and it is intended to inform policy and practice. So I was wondering, how do you think your research has influenced the conversation around public education? And if you can point to any changes in practice or policy as a result of research, I'd be curious to hear about that too. In terms of changing the conversation, I, I would argue that my, you know, the research that I've done, you know, this is joint work that I did in published in 2015 with Rucker Johnson and Claudia Persico on school spending. And then also I've done some, some subsequent papers on this. 
you know, for a long time, I think it was kind of accepted wisdom, certainly among economists and many other in the policy world that, you know, school spending doesn't really matter. The idea there was that the, the, the sort of the going consensus was, well, you know, it doesn't matter how much you spend, but what matters is how you spend the money. And what I think our research did, it was one of the first studies to really sort of lay out a compelling case using national data in the United States that in fact, school spending does matter. So we basically used, you know, school finance reforms, which led to a sudden infusion of cash to particular districts after the passage of a school finance reform. And we basically documented that the children who were in those schools that got an infusion of cash at the time when the money was received, they had much better outcomes later on. They were more likely to graduate high school. They went on to earn more money. They were less likely to be incarcerated as, as adults. So this paper, I think, started to change the conversation um, as it was I think one among the first to document in a, in a pretty compelling way that increases in school spending really does improve the outcomes of children. And, you know, that was published in 2015. And I think there's now been a shift where if you speak to most economists now or people in the policy world, people who are up and up on the ongoing literature, most of them will now say, well, even though we didn't believe it, then it looks as though there's a whole new set of evidence now, not just my work, but also there's a few there's additional studies speaking to the same topic as well, showing that school spending does in fact matter. So I think that conversation has definitely shifted in part as a consequence of the research that I've done and also others in this area. That's something I think that's very, very valuable. The hope is that this, I think policymakers are starting to listen to this. And I think instead of shying away from sort of thinking of spending as a way to improve outcomes, they're now thinking, well, maybe this is going to be part of the solution. And I think they're starting to, to, to enter into the toolkit. Other ways in which it might influence things is, you know, just in terms of court cases, legal challenges against the existing school finance systems currently are citing my research that we have done and also other research, other researchers have done on this topic, showing that, yes, there is compelling evidence that school spending does improve outcomes. So that's, that's something that's directly going to influence policy as well. So there are definitely impacts that I see happening, both in the conversation, but also in terms of legal decisions that are going to have real impacts on children, like right now or in the, in the years to come. You know, in terms of changing the conversation, I think it's important that we don't focus on one particular paper, but we follow an entire literature. So, you know, one of the papers that I wrote recently that has gotten a lot of attention is actually not a piece of primary research where I got my own data, but actually it's just kind of an overview piece where I gathered basically as much information as I could about all the papers that have been written in the past 10 years that use what I would call credible research designs and arguably uncover some kind of causal relationship between school spending and student outcomes. And in this overview piece, what I basically do is I say, look, here are all these studies that exist that have been on the topic, and here's a number of the studies that find positive effects, and here are the studies that have negative effects. And basically, the conclusion there was the vast majority of papers, I think it was something like 95% of them, almost 100% of these papers, all find positive relationship between school spending and student outcomes, and most of them ended up being statistically significant. So what I did in that paper was just sort of lay out the evidence, explain why the more recent literature is actually very, very much consistent with the idea that school spending matters. And I think the reason this was powerful and it gets cited a lot or talked about a lot is it was not written for a technical audience. It was written primarily as a way to sort of synthesize the literature and translate it for people who don't have time to read 40 or 50 papers on the topic. And I think it's been really influential because it's kind of, it's a piece of translational research in a sense. When you publish these papers, who are you getting feedback from? How do they engage with you? Are you getting emails, phone calls? 
Is it fellow academics? Are there school principals, superintendents, people of the state level who want to talk to you about your research? It's really all of the above. So there are, I definitely get emails from individual superintendents, principals asking me, so oftentimes they're just thanking me for writing something because it showed something that they knew to be true, but they hadn't, didn't have something concrete to point to. Oftentimes it would be asking me whether something that they're thinking about sounds like a good idea. It might be other researchers who are just want to know further questions on how I did things or how I came up to this or just ask me for copies of the paper. So it really, it really does run the gamut in terms of people um, being interested in it. Um, a, lot of, a lot of this also happens on Twitter. People would tweet about it. So yeah, Twitter, I, I wanted to ask you about that anyways, because I saw that you have 11,000 plus followers and you have an active presence on social media. So how, how do you use social media as a means for engaging with the field and disseminating your own findings? And I don't know, perhaps it's also a way of learning about or start developing your research questions. Just, yeah, how do you use social media as a communications tool? Yeah, so I, I, I use Twitter for a bunch of different things. I found it to be really helpful to engage with other researchers in the area. So, for example, you know, when I was writing a piece, for example, looking at the effects of school spending on outcomes, as I mentioned before, I wanted to summarize a whole set of papers. I didn't want to just focus on one paper or just on the most famous papers, but I really want to get a set a sense of what all what is really the research out there. And you know, Google certainly nets a lot, and I can certainly do searches through you know other more formal sources. But you know, a lot of people are writing in a topic, and they have their working papers. Maybe it's on their personal websites, or they haven't even released them yet, or they know of someone who's doing that because they're actively in 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 the, in the field. And I wanted to get the most up to date things, and by going on Twitter, and I could basically crowdsource some papers. Now, of course, if I go on Twitter and say, do you, are you doing any research in this area? What, what can you send me links? Most of the things are things that I would have found anyway, but for sure, there were probably three or four papers that either would not have come to my attention because the paper was not published or it was written by someone who was not famous enough to have it just be something that was in the ether, so to speak, or it was a case where papers had been written and the authors had updated the version and the most up-to-date version hadn't been posted. So it was it's a way, I think, to, for me to sort of keep up to date with like what the cutting edge research is in a topic um, if you engage with a whole bunch of other active researchers in the field. So that's been, that's been one way in which I've used it to actually help with my research directly. Apart from that, I, I also do interface with, with some journalists in the, in the field and also just people who like to you know, comment on policy in general. That's just for me to also see what the debates are so I can look to Twitter and see what various people have to say about school choice or charter schools or something of that nature. And I get a, a, a you know almost real-time sort of information about what state policy just changed on charter schools or what school district just voted them down, that sort of thing. So I get a good sense of what's going on and just kind of helps keep me abreast of the situation. You know, the benefit of, of being connected to a broad set of people like that is when I have my own research, I also can get it out there. I can sort of say, well, here's my new, my, my new working paper check it out, give it a read, and people sometimes will just retweet it. That sort of gets the word out. The hope is that the research that I do has an impact on policy. That's one way in which it can sort of increase the likelihood that happens is by making sure more people see it. But also it allows for individuals to provide feedback directly. Either they can tweet at me or they can 
publicly say something about what they like or don't like about the paper. And I can even answer questions that someone may have. Someone may see a paper that I wrote and have a question about some statistics in the paper that is not very accessible to people who are not in the field. And that can sort of clear, clear all that up for, for people in a more layperson's kind of way. So I think it's, it's actually a very, very powerful tool for interfacing with other researchers in the field, getting a good sense of where, where people are and getting a sense of what the policies are and also as a way to disseminate information as well. All right, before we wrap up, I just have two more questions. One, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask, since we're talking during a pandemic, how COVID-19 might impact some of the areas that you've researched in K-12 education, like spending or the long-term outcomes for some of these students who are missing a lot of in-person schooling right now. And then what are you going to do next? What are the great research questions that you hope you can take up going forward? Yeah, I mean, the I'll start with the COVID question because that's easier. Yeah, I mean, I think the effects are, are going to be profound. And I think there are some ways in which the effects will be obvious, and I think others in which it will be less obvious. So I think the most obvious is the fact that we are going to be cutting our education budget. So I know, for example, in New York State, like uh, Cuomo just proposed a 20% cut to, to certain districts. And oftentimes when, when that happens, the money never comes back. You know, when you, when you cut the budgets of, of the schooling system coming from the state, typically, most of the time that money never comes back which is going to have a direct impact on student outcomes. That's uh, one thing that I think is pretty, pretty obvious. The second, which I think is much less obvious, is what, what is going to be the effect on children who are basically not in school right now? And I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. For sure, a lot of people have pointed to the fact that you know people who are of means are going to be much better able to weather the storm. That's certainly true. You can send your child to a pod or have a private tutor who's going to make sure that the child keeps up with the material. Or you can just pull your child out and send them to a private school so that they're actually attending in person and not looking at a screen for multiple hours a day. So I, for sure, there's going to be an increase in performance inequality between those that are of means and those that are not of means. But I think beyond that, not that that's not important enough, I think there are just going to be some profound socio-emotional impacts as well. So, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, a lot of the things I'm interested in is not just the test score performance, but also what's happening to the development of the child. And, I, you know, I think for individuals who are, you know, 16, 17 years old, spending a year learning virtually is probably not going to have a big uh, deleterious effect on their on their development. It may impact their mental health, which is also bad, but I don't think it's going to impact their development long-term. Uh, I do worry a little bit about children who are in, you know, like first grade, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, where they're still learning how to interact with people. And they're not yet at the age where they have a whole bunch of friends on their cell phones to get interact with and call. And a lot of, they're, they're learning how to interact and they're learning how society functions. And the inability to interact with their peers in a meaningful way for an entire year when their brains are developing and is, I think, is going to have a profound impact on these children. I don't know what it's going to lead to. And I said, I don't think it really does, but I, I suspect the, the scarring effects for this are, are going to be profound. Well, maybe this uh, segues for that last question about what to research next, because certainly those seem to be things that people will have to study in the future. But what, 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 do, you, what do you plan to take up? What are you do you have any studies already in the works or 
research questions that you're hoping to address in the future? I'm, I'm, I'm planning to essentially continue <laughs> the work that I'm already doing. You know, I've, I'm doing some very exciting work right now uh, using data from Chicago public schools where they've been measuring socio-emotional development measures for a long period of time. So I'm doing a lot of, I'm, I'm being sort of doing a lot of work on this to get a better sense of what schools are the ones that are promoting socio-emotional development and trying to get a handle of what kind of practices are going to be associated with improvements in these measures. Um, now, of course, as time goes on, COVID is going to be something one's going to have to contend with. And for sure, it'll be an open question as to whether schools that are really good on these measures are going to be able to sort of remediate some of the ill effects of COVID on these children. And that's something I don't really know. Once, you know, once we're back in school, we can have this conversation. But at this point, I don't really know. But I, I think that is going to be an active area of research. I think mental health is going to be another thing um, people are going to want to start looking into. I don't have any direct plans to do that right now, but it's something that I'm certainly interested in and I expect to be, a, unfortunately, a fruitful area of research in the future. All right. I think that's a great note to end on. Kirabo, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, JB. Thanks again to Kirabo Jackson. I'll include a few links in the show notes in case you want to read more about his research or the Kershaw Award. And thank you for listening to another episode of On the Evidence, the Mathematica podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I have a favor to ask. Please share it with a friend who you think might like our podcast too. As we cover research related to some of the most pressing public policy issues of the day, we want to make sure that we're reaching everyone who values evidence as much as we do. Of course, the other standard requests still stand. Subscribe if you haven't already, and if you have the time, we welcome ratings and reviews. As always, you can keep up with interesting work from Mathematica by following us on Twitter. I'm at JB Wogan, Mathematica is at Mathematica Now.